You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We pray now that you would usher us into even further, deeper uh, union, communion with you, that we might see you clearly even as we await that great day where we will see you finally and fully. But God, we pray that you would use your word right now uh, for your own glory, for our deepening joy in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Today is a torch day, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to go with Cedric and Jordan and talk about 1 John, this would be a great time to do that. Uh, Marcy just leaned over to me a minute ago. Luke was playing, and Emily was singing. She was like, it's kind of like, well, you guys were like eighth graders when we first moved here, and you were leading the youth group at Desert Springs, and now here you are, all grownsed up, and it's great, uh, just leading us as a church well, so thank you guys. Uh, Well, we need the Bible. We need this word for us today. Uh, 1 John is just so good. It's so needed. Last week, we talked about John's very first imperative, very first command. He almost waited a chapter and a half before he gave us a command. And what was it? What was it? Verse 15 of chapter 2, he said, do not love the world or the things in the world. And then, where we ended last week, I don't don't think I necessarily uh, made mention of the bookended command, the bookended imperative that he then gave in verse 27. But he said in, the, in verse 15, do not love the world or things in the world. And then in verse 27, he says, abide in him. Two 
bookending commands that he has given us. And this week, as we get right into verse 28, he is going to repeat that imperative, repeat that command to us. Remember, we said that John doesn't often use imperatives or commands, so when he does, we better pay special attention. Uh, And so we better pay really close attention this week if he's going to say again and again to abide in God, to abide in Christ. Verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. What does it mean to abide in him, to abide in Christ, to live in him, to dwell in him, to reside in him? All right, we might think, okay, those are great synonyms, and we even talked a little bit about it last week, but what does it practically mean for me to abide in in Christ, to live, to dwell in him. I think our greatest explanation and picture is in John's gospel, John 15, where Jesus uh, tells us to abide in me and I in you. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Is there anything that a leaf can do if it is detached from the vine? Is there any life in and of itself? A leaf that detaches from a tree just blows down the sidewalk. Eventually, it shrivels up and crumbles away. The reason a leaf stays alive is because of the life of the tree. And John has, tells us that Jesus says the exact same thing. When we, the branches, the leaves, are united to the vine united to the tree, we also have life. There is a place in which uh, we might, where does the leaf begin, the vine end? Where does the trunk of the tree end and the branch begin? I don't know, it's hard to say. We are united to him, the life of the vine, of Jesus. But when we are not attached to the tree, we are lifeless and useless. And so we begin to think through this, these categories of a big theological category, that of union with Christ in the letter of 1 John. That we uh, share in his death. We share in his life. We share in his resurrection. We are born again in his life. We have his life from above. We have new hearts that are alive to God. And so Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He writes this when he, has, when he is still alive. He has most assuredly not been hung on a cross, but Paul says, I have been crucified with him. It is no longer I who now live, but Christ who lives in me. So he is saying, I have died with him, and now I live in him. This is one reason why we practice baptism by immersion, by going under the water. We are signifying that we have been buried with Christ. Death. Your old nature is drowned, and you are washed and brought to new life in Christ, so that it is now no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. His sap, his lifeblood, his divine life flowing through us, deep and sure fellowship with God. And this is 1 John, deep and sure fellowship with God, that we might abide in him. And so, if fellowship with God is the big umbrella theme of 1 John, Then the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 make clear that the way we have fellowship with our triune God is to abide in Christ. We're going to ongoingly consider now what that means, what it means to abide in him. So we're going to do so under two thoughts tonight that we might hang our, uh, or two headings that we might hang our thoughts, that of reasons to abide and then results of abiding. Reasons to and results of 
abiding in Christ. So first of all, reasons to abide. Right off the bat, why should we abide? We're going to get to what that means, but why should we? Well, first of all, verse 28. The first reason we should abide in Christ is that we might have confidence. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John is going to talk quite a bit in the coming verses about the second coming of Jesus. John is sure, he is completely sure that it is going to happen, that Jesus will return. And of that, we can be equally sure. So remember, one of, if not the reason for John's letter is chapter 5, verse 13, where John says, that you may know that you have eternal life. So how is it that when Jesus appears, when Jesus, the righteous one, returns, we may actually have confidence and not shrink away from his coming? How might that be? It's an old question, but let's just say that Jesus returns in three minutes. Why is it that we might have confidence in his coming and not shame or fear? The old question of, why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus were to ask you that, what would you say? There is only one answer to that question which we can then have with confidence that we might enter into eternity with him. If your answer has anything to do with what you have done or what you have not done, you'll be left doubting because you could have always done more. At what what is the threshold of good works or avoidance of bad works that we might have confidence? You know, we won't have confidence. Even the right things that we do are often filled with poor motives. The only answer that we might be able to give that would give us confidence is the life of Christ. Remember from two or three weeks ago, the advocate, the one who argues on our behalf, argues not our merit, but his. So our answer must be, because you, Jesus, because of you, because you have lived for me, because you have died for me, because you were raised to new life, that I might be raised to new life, that I might be adopted as a son or daughter. I've trusted, I've believed, I've depended, I have clung on to that reality. I have abided in your life and death and resurrection, and since then, it is no longer I who live, but you who live in me. If this is not our answer, and by the way, this is not just to give you some fill-in-the-blank answer that you might tuck away in your pocket for if and when that ever happens. You remember the right thing to say. No, faith in Jesus is not a sentence. Faith in Jesus is actually abiding in him, trusting him. But if that is not our answer, then we will be filled with shame, John says, because we have trusted in our own merit, our own record. We have worshiped anything and everything but Jesus. And so Paul says in Colossians 2.6, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ as Lord, and just answer that question for me. If you're a Christian, how have you received Christ as Lord? How did you receive him? Desperate? In need? Helpless? But coming to him in faith and confidence? Paul says, therefore, as you have received Christ as Lord, so walk in him. So if you, how, how is it that you received him? In the same way, so now walk in him. So how do you walk in him? Desperate? In need? Helpless? But now with great hope, with great faith, with great confidence. In the same way, you come to him and you walk in him. Keep abiding in him so that you may have confidence. 
John then says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. But before he really gets going on what the effects of res- or results of abiding look like, what practicing righteousness actually means, it's like he slams on the brakes. Like, look at his argument. In chapter 2, verse 29, he says that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then skip down to chapter 3, verse 4, where he gives the converse, the, the opposite of that, where he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So he's got these two, he's got an argument here, but it's like he interrupts himself from chapter 2, 29, from 3 through 3, 4. He's got this little parentheses in the middle of his argument. He's like got to stop down on these verses and remind us again of the love of God. He's got to remind us of our identity. He knows that if he starts talking about righteousness and lawlessness and sin, we're just going to then take away and hear just a bunch of moralistic commands. So what does he say? A second reason to abide is not just for confidence, but because second, chapter three, verse one, we are his children. He says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we might be called children of God. And so we are. This word, what kind, literally means from what country. Like if you ever had an interesting food with a bunch of new flavors that you've never experienced, you're like, where is this from? Like what, what country, what part of the world does this come from? That's exactly what John is asking. He's just experienced new flavors of love. What in the world, where is this from? Because it ain't from around here. This is new. It's not like anything else that we have or will ever experience left to our own self, to our own love. This is a different kind of love. What kind of love is that? Well, it's powerful and amazing. So powerful and amazing that what happens? It makes us, people who were of the world, who were rebels against God, into his children. And not just called children, kind of like a we're pretending that we're children, or even called children in such a way that it's like a legal contract. No, he wants to clarify, and we are. We actually are. This is similar to human worldly adoption that many of you know and experience, either as adoptive parents or as adopted children, where the adopted actually become the children of the adoptive mother and father. It's not like a pretend thing. Not kind of like their children, but actual children with all of the rights of inheritance of belonging to the family. Adopted children even take on the traits, the customs of the parents and of the family. This is our reality. Amazing love. What kind of world does that kind of love come from? It's otherworldly. It's supernatural. We must be reminded of our identity as children. I keep quoting from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but once he said that, I do feel that this is perhaps the greatest weakness of the Christian church that we fail to realize what we are or who we are. That is the greatest failing in his estimation of the entire global church. We just forget who or what we are. Adopted children of the God of the universe, who has spoken the universe into existence, who has created you, he has adopted you. Whereas if we are forgetting who we are as sons and daughters, we perhaps can over and ongoingly slip back into a mentality of an orphan, of, the, of one not adopted, where I might live my life on 
a success or a failure basis, which can then make me fearful of love, make me anxious of love. I might tend toward comparing myself to others. I might tend toward being motivated not out of familial love, but out of obligation or of duty. I might be defensive when confronted. I might double down in my need to be right. I might just lack intimacy with my good father because I am forgetful of who who I am, reverting back to my former identity as one who is not adopted. But instead, I must be reminded that I can live as one entirely accepted, forgiven, for good, forever. That's good news. I can be confident of the Father's love for me, not fearful. Because my belonging does not depend upon my record or my resume of righteousness, I do not need to compare myself to others, either in looking down on others in pride that I am more righteous than they are, or looking up in others in shame because I am not as righteous as they are. Because I belong to God, I am free to just love him not out of obligation, but in freedom, as one who is safe and satisfied in the security of the family. Remember what we said a few weeks ago, that the gospel not only just takes us out of the courtroom, but it takes us into the family room. This is a good gospel. Now, side note, is John saying that all people are God's children? There is a creational Genesis 1 sense in which we are all created in God's image and we are all created as children of God. But in John 1, the Gospel of John, verse 12, what does John say, or who does John say are God's children? He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this fits into the theme of adoption all over the New Testament, that we are all left to ourselves spiritual orphans, not God's children, until we trust in the otherworldly love of the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. We are actually not his children. We are actually, back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, children of the devil. And I think we can think of like the really bad kids as children of the devil. I totally believed when I was like in third grade the, the myth that ACDC stood for Antichrist devil children, that if you liked back in black, you were a children, you were a child of the devil or something like that. Only the bad kids like ACDC, only the bad kids do all the really bad things of the world. That is not reality. This is not what the Bible tells us, that we are all children of the devil. We are all children of one, not God, until he welcomes us into his family, into adoption. So continue to abide in him because he is a better father than anything or anyone you could have ever imagined. He loves you more than you would ever have imagined. Why would you want to leave him? Why would you want to leave the Christ who has brought you near? Why would you distrust him? Why would you disobey him? And yet we do, because we are forgetful people. And so John is urging us to abide in him. Don't leave. Stay right there. Stay with him. Live in the light. Abide in him. Now, not just for confidence or because you are his children, but for a third reason. Verses two and three. 
The third reason that we should abide in him is that we will see him and be pure. John's going to start ruminating on the return of Christ again, and he gives us one of the glorious, one of the most hope-filling verses in the entire Bible. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John again reminds us that those who abide in Christ are his children. We are now but we don't even really know what that means yet. We get a glimpse of it. We get a taste of it. But it's, we're not going to know what that fully means until he appears. We can't imagine the glories of Christ, the benefits of being God's children until that day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Think about a mirror, not like a store-bought mirror, but maybe, I don't know, a piece of sheet metal or something in which you can see the reflection, see your reflection in that thing. That's basically our understanding and our reality of the gospel in our life today. It's a good thing. We can see, but still dimly. We think right now we understand things like God's holiness. Brothers and sisters, we have no idea the glory of God's holiness. We think we understand his overwhelming love. You have no clue. Just wait. You think we understand things like amazing grace and praise God that we do, but we just understand like this much of grace. But when we are thinking about these things now, we can experience them and see them, but it's sheet metal mirror. But when we see Jesus at his return face to face, we will see him as he really is, and then the whole world changes. Our reality changes. Our reality now being full of light and having no darkness changes. We will see our sin as vile. We will have that same reaction that Peter had of depart from me for I am an unclean man. But because God accepts us and forgives us, not because of our record, but because of the record of Jesus, we will see him now finally and fully as the object of all of our desires. We will finally receive our reward. And what is our reward? It's him. We will receive him God himself is our reward, being in his presence. And we'll probably think, how in the world was I this anxious about that? How in the world was I this tempted to worship that then, when I have seen this now? Here is satisfaction. Here is security. Here is identity. How could I have wasted so much of my life? So much time, so much energy, so much heartache, so much sin on the worship of other gods. But when we see him, we will be utterly transformed. Paul spends an entire glorious chapter on this future reality in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to like supplement your reading, your study of 1 John 3 this week with another chapter of the Bible, just go read 1 Corinthians 15 three or four times. Where Paul basically describes that what we are now our worldly, this side of the return of Christ reality is essentially an acorn. But at the return of Christ, the acorn is transformed. Something that is the same, it had its roots here, but it became, it became something entirely different. A caterpillar to a butterfly. Is the caterpillar a butterfly? It's not. Does the caterpillar become a butterfly? It does. This is our reality. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. This life, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And then, considering our union with Christ, Paul says, just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, just as we have been born in the image of Adam, weak, broken, uh, corruptible, able to die, now we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Caterpillar, butterfly, transformation, metamorphosis, completion, fulfillment. This is your reality, Christian. This will surely one day happen, and this will be who we surely will be. But then in verse 4, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you understand God's holiness and your ultimate holiness, even just as Luke was saying earlier, the joy that we don't have presently today will be finally and fully secured eternally. If all of that is true, then we, if we understand that rightly, then we are becoming that now. Listen, when, when Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth's son, was born in 1948, then making him, and then uh, becoming the heir to the throne in 1952, I'm sure he was thinking 20, 30 more years, and I'm going to be king of this whole joint. Prince Charles has been the heir to the throne of England for 69 years. His mom has COVID today, and she's just kicking. She's just, she's doing great. Uh, like, I don't know if she's going to die. and She might outlast her son. Prince Charles' entire life has been centered around who he is, more importantly, who he will become. And perhaps all of that has been like an arresting thing in his reality. Who he will become and his mother who will not die uh, perhaps has been, I don't know, I'm sure he loves her, but perhaps this reality is like cumbersome of who he will be. I'm going to be the king of England. This reality puts a lot of pressure on me. It's not a free life, but this is exactly the opposite of the Christian life. Who we not only are, but who we will be, who we will become. You are an heir to the throne of God. If that is true, like just think about all of the other things that we dedicate our lives to in hope that are with things that are uncertain. Think about how many hours you dedicate to practicing an instrument, to practicing your golf swing. Think about all of the things that you have all the many hours in your life that you have devoted to success, to a better job, to getting into the right school or whatever. All of these things that are uncertain, they may amount to nothing. How much more should we dedicate our lives to growing in holiness and joy, to the knowledge of God, to fellowship with God, something that is certain, certain for eternity? Again, Lloyd-Jones says, I am not to live a good and holy life in order that I may become a Christian. I am to live the holy life because I am a Christian. I am not to live this holy life in order that I may enter heaven. It is because I know that I'm going to enter heaven that I must live this holy life. That I must pursue righteousness. That I must turn from sin. That I must want God. And so all of this in all of this, John gives us three reasons to abide in Christ. 
that we might have confidence because we are children, who we are presently, and because we will be pure, who we will become. It's like past, present, and future. These are all reasons to abide in Christ, which now gets us to the second half of this, the results of abiding. If we do all that, if we are abiding in Christ, if we are just staying with him, walking with him daily in his word, in prayer, with his people, what are the results? Let's read this uh, somewhat confusing piece of God's word again. Verses 4 through 10 of 1 John 3. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, at first glance, it looks like we could sum up these verses like this. If you sin, you are not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you do not sin. Right? Yes. No. Uh, In fact... Though there, there, were like, there have been like entire movements of Christians, movements like the holiness movement or like people called the perfectionists, uh, who were most likely influenced by this text. Uh, a funny story. There's a guy who was in Spurgeon's church who said that he had stopped sinning. He had become perfected uh, by the Spirit of God, and Spurgeon just stomped on his foot. And the guy like responded in anger. And Spurgeon said, no, you aren't. (laughs) I don't know if that was a good pastoral move or not, uh, but he proved the point. Uh, What's the problem with this kind of thinking? This kind of thinking where we stop sinning entirely, it just doesn't fit in the Bible. It also just doesn't fit in the context of 1 John. Remember from 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 2, 1, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what do these verses mean? What are the results of abiding in Christ? What are the results of having Jesus' life flowing through our spiritual veins? One, the result of abiding in Christ is that we don't make a practice of sinning. John gives us maybe the shortest and most succinct definition of sin in the Bible. What is sin? 3 verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Meaning, like we've talked about over and over, sin isn't just a passive thing. Sin isn't just a goof up or a mistake, a bad habit. Sin is lawlessness. Now, lawlessness can be unknowing and unintentional. You can be ticketed by a police officer for accidentally turning in the wrong direction into a one-way street. You can be found guilty for manslaughter. 
because of texting while driving. That was not intentional. But in Psalm 19, David prays, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. We are culpable even for unintentional sin, which is all the more reason to know God deeply, to understand his word, to exercise and strengthen our consciences that we might even be aware of the sin that we were previously unaware was even sin. But more than unknowing or unintentional lawlessness, sin is most often very active. Sin is conscientious and willful law-breaking. A posture that says, perhaps even with a middle finger to the heavens, I will not sit under your rule or your authority over my life. I am the rule or authority of my life. I will do what I want and what I think is right. Sin is a refusal, an active breaking of God's law, and we are all guilty of it. So abiding in Christ is a turning from that. One who abides in Christ does not make a practice of sin, does not make a practice of lawlessness. Because why? Verse 8 The second half of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil has blinded our eyes. He's kept us in lawlessness. He's leading us in open rebellion against the king, leaving us for dead, distracting our worship, and yet we have union with Christ. We now share in his nature. We now share in his life, not the old way. And so we are not only able to not keep sinning in the old ways, John is saying that if you do keep sinning in the same old ways, making a practice of that over the long run in your life, you may not actually believe in him. You may not be abiding. You may not have his life. Remember, though, it is probably unhealthy for us to take a spiritual temperature check daily. Probably better once or twice a year or so. Are you growing in your hatred of sin? Are you growing in your love of holiness? which leads us to our second result of abiding. Not only in turning a movement away from sin, not making a practice of sin, but now second, a turning to, a practicing of righteousness. Rather than making a practice of sin, John says in verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Now John calls his readers little children all over the place, just twice here in this section. He is an affectionate spiritual father, but perhaps he's calling them children here because he knows that little children can be easily deceived. Kids can be so trusting, and because of that, they can become vulnerable targets. And so, the false teachers here that John is perhaps confronting, one commentator says, seem to have been claiming that they lived on a super spiritual plane like living above reality, a spiritual plane, well above any sort of law or rules. And so the Christian was free to just know God, just to experience God without following his commands. This is actually not the world that Jesus has brought us to, where we are free to just know him but not care about how knowing him plays out in the very uh, real and practical areas of our life. John is saying that a Christian, someone who is abiding in Christ, sees the glories of God, sees the depths and depravity of their sin, and is moved away from that toward holiness, away from lawlessness to becoming like him. This is practicing righteousness, walking in the good works that God has created for us and saved us to 
as Paul might say in Ephesians 2.10. Because remember, remember, our justification, big theological word there for just God making us right before him, forgiving our sins, our justifications, our, the forgiveness of our sins, all of that, that's not the end goal of Jesus' coming to live and die for you. Your forgiveness, your justification is not the reason that Jesus has come. That's not heresy, what I just said. Hang in there. Your justification is just a means to an end. Your sanctification, becoming like him, your glorification, your being utterly transformed into his image, your being invited into the life of the triune God, that is why Jesus has come to live and die for you. Your justification is a big first step in that, but it's moving somewhere. If you think your justification, the forgiveness of your sins, is all that Jesus has come to do, you dishonor Jesus as some sort of half-savior that can get you off the hook, but do nothing more. Jesus has come to save sinners from the penalty of sin, yes, but he has also come to save sinners from the power of sin now. Ultimately, to deliver us from the presence of sin forever. But, Christian, you have resurrection power. He has given it to you by the Spirit. You are now finally, not in the old ways, but now finally able to choose righteousness. Set free to choose what is honoring to God. To choose joy for yourself. But does this practicing of righteousness, pursuing of holiness, does it seem like an impossible or even an unattainable goal? Is thinking about all of this discouraging? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Do you struggle through questions of, if I am a Christian, why do I still sin? John is more concerned with encouraging you with, if I am in the light, why am I not walking in the light? If I am already here, if I am knowing Christ and seeing him, why do I keep choosing darkness? Choose joy for yourself. You have the power of God to do that. Keep walking in the light as he is in the light. You have an advocate before the Father. Every moment of every day of our entire existence is lived before the warm light of God in whom there is no darkness. So it does not matter if you cover your eyes like a three-year-old, assuming that if you can't or don't or want, don't want to see God, that he can't see you or something like that. But how silly is our life? And that, that is exactly what we do day by day. Acting like a three-year-old, just pretending since we're not acknowledging God's reality in our life today that he can't see us or I don't know. He sees you more clearly than you see yourself. He desires your joy. He desires your holiness. He empowers your holiness and he invites you into his life and his character to be experienced now and forever. And so this is practicing righteousness. Together, corporately, with one another, over dinner tables and coffees, together in gatherings like this, with practice, with deliberate conversation, with deliberate prayer, but with joy, now finally rid of shame, rid from guilt, rid from condemnation, because we are all living in the warm light of God's holiness, of God's fatherly love, 
This is turning from lawlessness, walking in the light, and practicing righteousness. Very specific things in our lives that ought to be acknowledged, confessed to one another, confessed to God, and turned from. Not perfectly forever, but ongoingly, and more and more and more, that we might live in the light as he is in the light. This is a good God who is patient. This is a good God who, again, like a couple of weeks ago, he is not a God who gets angry at his three-year-old child who stumbles when he's learning to walk and to run. Many of us are just learning to walk and to run. He's patient as he brings us into a righteous life, a holy life, a light of light, a light, a life of joy. But we need each other for this. Christ Church, we need each other. Keep meeting with one another. Keep praying with one another. Keep reading the Bible together. Keep reading books together. Keep confessing sin to each other, with each other. This is the life that we were created for, both now and forever. What a God. What a gospel. What a Savior. What a church we have together. Let's thank God for it all. Our Father, we are thankful. We're so thankful that we can call you Father, that you are not some distant and powerful king, some powerful God. You would not necessarily be a good God if you were just but powerful. But you are a good God because you have loved us, that you have not left us in our sin, left us in our rebellion, but you have pushed through it. You have lived in it. You have conquered it. You have put away the power of the devil in our lives. You have put away the power of sin in our lives. You have freed us by the cross of Christ. Lord Jesus, you have been raised to new life. You have highly exalted yourself and you have welcomed us there, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Help us to remember who we are and what we are, who we will be that we might be that now. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.